So we're continuing our series in parables. We have this week, next week, and the week after. And then we're calling it quits on parables. So 20, I think it'll be 24 weeks in total. And uh, basically what we're doing today is we're going to talk about a parable, actually two parable-type illustrations from Jesus. And what I mean by that is that Jesus uses two short illustrations that end with questions that have obvious answers to any reasonable person. And I'll say to any reasonable person, because some people are not reasonable, so they don't come up with the answers that Jesus uh, desired them to come up with. So the context is that Jesus had been teaching and preaching and healing and speaking in parables, and a crowd began to follow him. He was walking around doing amazing things, and crowds gathered, crowds began to follow him. So Jesus turned to address the crowds, and I would imagine pretty much surprised everyone when he said this. He pretty much surprised everyone when he said this. Luke 14, 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wait, what? Does anybody have a problem with this statement? Um, I, I hope you do have a problem with this statement, because there's two that I could think of just when I read it. The first is hate, if anyone does not hate. And then the second is who Jesus says to hate. They're the closest people to us, the people we're supposed to love. In fact, it's even our own life that Jesus says to hate. So obviously, because hating goes against everything we learn about love in the scriptures, there must be a reason and a logical explanation of why Jesus said this. Why Jesus said this. And there is, because the concept here is counting the cost of following Jesus, or in other words, the cost of discipleship. So in the first statement about hating family and oneself, Jesus is teaching us, when you count the cost of following me, what is the worst case scenario that you can think about? Okay, when you count the cost, when when you're called to follow Jesus, when you're when you hear the beautiful gospel message and you're called to follow him, what is the worst case scenario that you could think of happening when you make that commitment? And everybody has these issues when when they're dealing with having faith in Christ, when they're dealing with making a decision to follow Jesus. They think, well, what are other people going to think? What's going to happen? How's my life going to change? Now, there are two here that Jesus deals with, and the first is being abandoned by family or friends, being abandoned or mocked by family or friends. Some of you may have had that in your life. When you became a Christian, people abandoned you or mocked you for it. When you trust in Jesus and become his follower, are you prepared? Jesus is looking at these people behind him and saying, are you prepared to be abandoned by family and friends? This does not mean you will be, but in some cases, people are disowned by family members because they became believers. Many people from Jewish and Muslim backgrounds are disowned when they trust in Christ. One of our missionaries, Larry Stamm, I don't know if it, some of you remember his testimonies, Jewish background, his family, his father disowned him when he trusts in Christ. This is not the fault of Jesus or the person that trusts in Jesus. This has everything to do with the rejection those families have of Jesus, then seeing their loved one follow Jesus. Now, the question Jesus is asking is, if that happens, 
will you still follow? If that happens, will you still follow? If everyone you know and love turns their back on you because you decide to follow Jesus, will you still follow? Will the pressure be too great that you don't want this in your life? Will the pressure and the, 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 the insults or, or the disowning, will that be too great and you won't want to follow? You know what? Maybe it's not being disowned by family or friends, but maybe it's being mocked by them. This is probably more relevant for you and I because, you know, we don't live in a culture where people are necessarily disowning family for trusting in Christ. But maybe some mock you. Some may have family and friends that are atheists and think that trusting in Jesus and belief in an all-powerful God that created everything is simple-minded and ridiculous. You might know some of those people. They look at you and think you're simple-minded. You're getting up early and going to church for what? To worship something that's fake? That's what they would say. They mock you. It bothers them that you have faith, and they mock you. They make sure they point out all your sins and mistakes. You ever been there? Make a mistake? Aren't you a Christian? I can't believe you did that, okay? They're like trying to play the Holy Spirit in your life, and they're mocking you, and they're pointing out. And generally speaking, they give you a hard time because you are a follower of Jesus. The question Jesus is asking is, if this happens, will you still follow? Now remember, these people are all literally walking and following Jesus, okay? They're, they're following him, and he's turning to them and talking to them. So if the answer to that is, if the answer to will you still follow Jesus, if you're disowned or mocked, if the answer is no, then you love them more than you love Jesus. You get that? Remember the first thing he said? He said, if anybody's not willing to hate his father, mother, and you know, family, friends, whatever, if the answer to that is no, then you actually love them more than you love Jesus. But if you still follow Jesus when they disown and mock you, you run the risk of them perceiving that as hatred towards them. And if that is the case, will you still follow? So some maybe in a family that, you know, disowned uh, somebody in their family because of their faith in Jesus. So then the person continues on, still follows Jesus, has faith in Jesus, still follows. Now the family perceives it, perceives it as hatred towards them. When in fact, it's not hatred towards them at all. It's a love for Christ. So if you still follow, you're a true follower, obviously, but that does not make it easy. And if this is the case, how do we respond as believers when we're treated in this way? Now, this is where it all turns around, because if this happens, okay, if you're mocked, if you're disowned, okay, maybe your gut is probably saying, well, eh, to those people. Okay, I don't have anything, anything to do with them, or I'm going to get back at them, or whatever. It might be a vengeance type of thing. But here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43 through 45. Here's how we respond to being treated in that way. It says, you have heard it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So now Jesus obviously isn't teaching hatred towards anyone, but what he's saying is everyone who comes against you, even your enemies, you need to love them and pray for them. Jesus here is telling us, love them, pray for them. Obviously, his intention in the original statement was not to hate them, but it was that our love for him should be primary. 
what other people think and what other people say should not affect our commitment to him, our commitment to following him, to being his disciple, because that's what he's talking about, people that are sold out following after him. But the next worst case scenario gets a little more personal, because maybe you don't deal with anybody like that. You're like, everybody was pretty happy for me when I became a Christian. A lot of people that I know, they were pretty happy for me. Even people that don't believe, they're like, you know what? They seem like a better person because of their faith in Christ. They seem to be moving the right direction, you know, so this is good. So maybe you don't have that worst case scenario, but maybe the second worst case scenario is this, abandoning the life that we know and are comfortable with. See, when we're called to follow Christ, of course, it's simple belief in Jesus that saves us, right? But then there's a conviction that comes along with it when the Holy Spirit comes to live in our lives. There are two issues here when we deal with that because we have our lives, the lives that we live, and now all of a sudden we've committed our lives to Christ and there should be some kind of radical change. So there's two issues here. One is loving our personal opinions, one is loving our personal opinions. Maybe you have personal opinions that don't necessarily fall in line with biblical truth, okay? Right now, opinions are pretty polarizing, aren't they? I mean, this culture that we live in, opinions, and, you know, now with the, with the great invention of social media, not only does everybody have opinions, but they can share them, okay? They can put them in places, and you can see them, and you're like, you know what? I never really wanted to know what their opinion was, and because I never asked, but they put it out there. So we have politically charged opinions, maybe, that we love so much that we'll only like people that agree with our opinions. These things become part of us, and unfortunately, in this day and age, we've seen this, these opinions become more important than actually following Jesus. Political opinions and what people believe about certain things have become more important than following Jesus. And I'm talking to Christians because there's many Christians that feel this way. Their political opinions on things are more important than biblical opinions. There's a brand of Christianity that's risen up in the past few years, and I would say in some senses the past few decades, that's more about politics than following Jesus. Christians have gotten behind leaders and media personalities that give Jesus lip service. They say things like, we have Judeo-Christian ethics, but then they treat people harshly. They call other people names. They mudsling at other people. They're not an example of how Jesus would act based upon someone's opinion of something going on in the world. You're wondering maybe who these people are. Well, you can obviously see in the media and stuff who the leaders of these opinions are, but you know what? You might have friends that are always complaining about everything that's going on and they're very one-sided. Maybe they're always putting out quotes and memes and stuff like that on social media that are just to enrage and engage people in arguments. How helpful is that for the cause of Christ. Rarely is it about love and the salvation of Jesus. Do you realize this? That somebody that does not agree with you on any level, you can have somebody that doesn't agree. If you say black, they say white. If you say day, they say night. They don't agree with you. Guess what? 
they still need Jesus. They still need the love of Christ. They still need someone in their life to show them that Jesus loves them. And you know what? In our world, in our culture, we're post-Christian, okay? You can't expect that people are going to find it somewhere just along the way because, by and large, things are moving away from biblical truth. In fact, I heard not too long ago, it's only like 8 or 10% of Christians have a biblical worldview. That means that we have 90% of Christians walking around that their worldview is not even based upon what Jesus actually says. Do you see how this is working? It's not, okay? It's not. Have things gotten better? They haven't. So this is not a surprise because, you know, Matthew 24, 12, when Jesus talks about the signs of the end times, do you know what he, one, of, one of the verses says in verse 12? It says, and because lawlessness will be increased, we see that, but this is the sad part. The love of many will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. We see that a lot as well. The love of Christians for other people growing cold. Do you know what? I think as believers, we need to strive to be known for people that love other people. Love one another, of course, because Jesus tells us that. That's how people will know we're disciples. But loving other people. If Jesus was here, would he rebuke the people? I think there's a good possibility that if somebody's so interested in their opinions on the way things should go, would he rebuke them or would he go along and agree? Think about this for a second. I think most of you know enough about the character of Jesus to know what he would say in many of these situations. The second issue, and this is going to hit a little more home because maybe you're like, yeah, Pastor Mike, preach it. I can't stand when people are like all about opinions and, and hating on other people because they have different opinions. But this one might dig a little home because this one gets a little more secret, okay? Remember, we're talking about hating ourselves. If we're not willing to hate ourselves, that's what Jesus is saying, okay? The second issue when it comes to abandoning the life that we know and are comfortable with is loving our own sinful ways. Loving our own sinful ways. We know that salvation is by faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. But there's obviously a high price, right? There's a high cost to following Jesus, isn't there? We know that the gospel is we are all sinners, and Jesus saved us when he died on the cross. All who believe will have eternal life. When you believe in Jesus' death and resurrection, you will have eternal life. We know that message. But we also know this. It does not stop there. It does not stop there. We should be convicted to turn our backs on the sins that we've been committing. You know, some people feel like, okay, I'm a, I'm a believer now. And, you know, like, yeah, I have these sins and stuff. And I, and I really like them, okay? I really like my sin. I kind of embrace it. I like to continue to do that. It's really not that big of a deal. I'm pretty comfortable with this life. Now, the scriptures teach us, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So what that's teaching us is this, is when we trusted in Christ, 
We've been crucified with Christ. Basically, we've taken our sin and thrown it at the cross. And Jesus is saying, you've killed that sin. Don't go back there anymore. But sadly, many of us are so comfortable with the sinful things that we do that we don't really want to give those things up. It might be a little sin, like gossip. It might be a huge sin, like gross immorality. I don't know what it is, but here's the truth. If you love that more than you love following Christ, you got to do a self-check. You got to figure it out. You got to realize, is this more important than my allegiance and love for Jesus? Some of us have a hard time with abandoning our sinful ways, our old way of thinking, our old way of acting. We've fallen in love with our sinful ways, and we don't look at these things, uh, we don't look at these sins with hatred. We don't look at these things and say, I hate that. I shouldn't be doing that. We look at it with love. And do you realize this? When Jesus turned to that crowd and he said, if you're not willing to hate that stuff, you're not going to really have a real relationship with me. It's not going to be a healthy one. That's one thing for sure. I mean, think about the relationships that you have in your life. If, you, if you're married, if you put something aside from the Lord Jesus before your spouse, you're going to run into problems, okay? If you're a workaholic and always working, your spouse is eventually going to feel unloved. If you're abusing some kind of drug or alcohol and your spouse is seeing like, hey, stop doing this, I care too much about you, and you continue on that road, you're going to have trouble in your marriage. I mean, it's pretty much relationships 101. Well, now you have to look at that with your commitment to the Lord. We've become comfortable. We don't want our lives to change. But it's not only about a life change. It's actually about a willingness to die for Christ. Now, this is where it really gets heavy. This is a message people don't like to hear. But this concept of willingness to die for Christ because Jesus goes on to say, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, what does that mean? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, Romans forced the convicted criminals to carry their own crosses. Remember, Jesus carried his own cross to the place of crucifixion. So they're like, hey, if you're a criminal, because many people were crucified, if you're a criminal... You're going to die on this cross, but we ain't carrying it, okay? You're carrying it, okay? You're going to carry your cross to your death. Bearing a cross meant carrying their own execution device while facing ridicule along the way to death. So therefore, Jesus, when he says, take up your cross and follow me, means being willing to die in order to follow Jesus. This is called dying to self. It's a call to absolute surrender. Luke 9, 24 through 25 says this, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses or forfeits himself? Now this is a weighty commitment that Jesus is asking us. The cost of following him may be everything that we know and love. He doesn't say it will be, but he says it can be. You get that? Okay? Because most of us here, if I came up to you and said, would you die for Christ? You'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay? 
I'd die for Christ. Of course I would, Pastor Mike. If, if somebody was like, do you believe in Jesus? And they had a gun to my head. Of course I would say yes. Okay? But sad to say, even those who would say yes to that, did you read your Bible today? Well, I kind of got busy. Okay? <laughs> did you go to church? Well, you know, I didn't really feel like it. Okay? Were you kind to your neighbor? Eh, that was kind of hard. Okay? His leaves blew to my side of the fence. You know, and, and we think about this and we say, we're not even doing the little things. But then we would agree and say, yes, I would die for the Lord Jesus. So to this crowd following him, Jesus is saying, you have a lot to consider. You have a lot to consider. And now, because you're wondering where the parable is, right? And now he gives them two parable type illustrations on how you consider these things to drive his points home. Okay? This is a huge commitment to be a follower of Christ. Verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not sit first down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Obviously, the, the obvious answer to any reasonable person is if you sit down to build, if you build something, you got to sit down and figure it all out, right? You got to figure it all out. You got to take the time to look and say, okay, what do I need? How much is this going to cost? What's my timeline? What's my punch list? If you're not doing that stuff, guess what's, what happens? Like this person, you're going to build the foundation and then everybody's going to mock you because... You couldn't finish. How many times have you seen that? Maybe some of you, maybe in your neighborhood or around here in town stuff, you see something that people started, right? A building that people started and never finished. And you're like, what's going on over there? You know what I mean? What's wrong with these people? And then somebody tells you, oh, that's so-and-so and this and that. Uh, they started and they couldn't finish. And you're like, really? Isn't the town going to do something about this? Somebody's got to do something about this, right? You, all these things go through your head. This is what's going on. When people make a commitment to Christ, but don't count the cost. In the same way, if we do not consider the cost of following Jesus, when the things and the pressures of this world come our way, we'll cave under the pressure or look very foolish for believing or aligning ourselves with something that we do not fully understand. So Jesus wants us, he, he wants us to give this serious consideration which rolls into the next parable type illustration, which is very similar. And he says, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet the one who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. So again, an obvious answer, a wise king sits down, figures it out. Okay, I have this kingdom, need to protect it. Can I do it with 10,000 guys? Uh, well, this guy's got 20,000 coming at me. Um, is there a way that we could sit down and work this thing out, have some peace? He's considering, okay? He's making the plan. He's figuring it out. Nobody in his kingdom wants to follow him if he doesn't have a plan, right? Nobody's going to, oh, I'm going to follow that king? He doesn't even know what he's doing. Again, an obvious answer. The wise king sits down, figures it out, what his kingdom's up against, how, how many soldiers he needs? Is there an opportunity for peace without conflict? That's what Jesus wants us to consider. 
Do we know what we're up against? When you step out and make the commitment to Christ, do you know what you're up against? See, the lesson from these parable-type illustrations is that trusting in Jesus is a serious decision and should not be taken lightly. And a person needs to count the cost and realize what they're up against. You may notice this at our church. You never hear me say things like, okay, just say this simple little prayer and you're saved, or come forward to receive Jesus. Now, I don't want to be critical of churches and ministries that do things like that, because I think God does use that in many ways. But salvation, we know salvation occurs at a moment in time when a person believes and puts their faith in the gospel message. But Jesus is telling right here in these passages, this is really something you need to consider. So from our perspective as a church, we preach that all the time, don't we? We preach it all the time. But many people, you know what? They come and they listen and they consider. That was you. Maybe you were on your journey. I'll talk to people and be like, you know, I'm, I'm here or there. Like in my journey, I'm listening. I'm hearing. I started to pray. I started to read. I'm starting to think about things. This is mind-changing. This should radically change our life. Our commitment to Christ should radically change everything. Should radically change everything. Some people will hear the message of Jesus and realize the implications that will take on their have on their life, and they'll reject it and they'll turn away from it. They'll hear and they'll say, "That sounds like too much of a commitment to me. I don't want to have anything to do with it." I mean, think about it. This is Jesus, okay? If we're trying to build a crowd of people, if that's all we're trying to do, think about it. Jesus had the crowd. He didn't turn around and say, wow, look at this. This is awesome. Look how many people are following me. This is amazing. Look how popular I am, okay? No, he turned around and said, hey, if you're not willing to die for me, you're walking, you're following after me right now is actually useless. That was why Jesus turned to the crowd and said those things. It's about faith in him. But once that faith is engaged, there's a high calling that goes along with it. There's a commitment and there's a calling. Jesus concludes with this. He says, so therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So is he saying, give up everything and then you're my disciple? No, he's saying your mindset, the willingness to commit, your willingness to look and say, if my family turns their back on me, if people mock me, if there's things in my life that I love more than him and I'm going to continue towards those things, you know what? I'm not ready to make that commitment right now. Why? Well, he answers that. And this is where it gets kind of interesting. Well, it's always been interesting, in my opinion. He says, basically, you're going to be useless to the kingdom. Listen to what it says, verse 35 and uh, 34 through 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Do you know what we as Christians are supposed to be considered? The salt of this world, the salt and light. And he's saying salt is good, but you know what? Salt that doesn't taste salty 
that doesn't do what salt's supposed to do is useless, okay? Salt can't not become salt, right? So if you're entering into a commitment, a relationship with the Lord, you're the salt of this world. You don't want to be useless. You don't want to be the one that's thrown away in the sense of a useless commitment, a lip service, not really committed to the Lord. So then he ends with this. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. Do you think all the people in the crowd went like this? Uh, uh, okay. I don't think they did. What he was saying is, spiritually speaking, are you hearing me? Is this having any impact on you? It's not just a message that you hear and say, uh-huh, I agree with that, and I'm just going to go on my merry way. It's the message of the gospel that should radically change your life. And if it hasn't, you got to start looking and saying, am I really committed to this? Do I really believe this? Is this something that I've been raised with this or something that I just do because it looks good? Do you want to be useful for the kingdom? I think you do. You're here this morning. I think you want to be useful for the kingdom. Then count the cost of following after Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this day. We're thankful, Lord, that we have a high calling. Lord, we're thankful that we have a God who loves us and serves us and calls us to be used for your kingdom. I just pray here, Lord, that each person would count the cost of following after you, would realize that their trust in you should ignite a commitment that will put them into a life of service for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.